going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow <laughs> Podcast, episode 105. you gotta, you got to listen back to after that. You get There's something like... Something going on. Is it raspy? It's very raspy raspy right now. (laughs) Yeah, I'm feeling a bit raspy today, but I'm coming in with a bit of confidence and trying to hide it, but clearly not doing a very good job. That's all right. Well, you know, it sounds good. It sounds good. I got my popcorn chicken. (laughs) I'm ready to talk about some movies. Uh, Good stuff. Well, Zeke, in in good old tradition, have a quote for you. Mm -hmm. Episode 105, so have a quote from a 2005 film. Um, You are four for zero right now. So, you're kicking ass. I'm going to try and throw you off with this one. We'll okay. see how well it goes. Are you ready, Zeke? I am. All right. Let's keep the streak going. Oh, we'll see. <laughs> the quote is, Good morning, star sign. Sorry, let me say that again. I already stuffed it up. Good morning, star shine. The earth says hello. That's my quote. Wow. That's a toughie. <laughs> um, okay. And I have seen this film before. You have seen this film. You don't think highly of this film. I'll give you that. Wow. Um, But it's a critically praised film? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Probably not, but... (laughs) Oh, have you not seen it? No, I've seen it. But it's it's one of those... It's a very 2005, 2005 film. So we probably all saw it as kids in the cinema. And it's, it's hard to tell at the time. Was it a good film or not, you know? Good morning, starshine. The the earth says hello. <laughs> That's a toughie. That's a yeah. toughie. Um, I'll give you one more. It's a remake of another film from, I think, the 60s or 70s. That's my last clue. <laughs> That's okay. I think my streak's going to die here, unfortunately. Oh, no. Uh, you look so happy. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, a great quote. Are you, are you, Good do you morning, star shine. No, mm, mm, we could sit here for an hour and a half and just think of it. <laughs> Fill up the whole episode. Um, Good morning, star shine. The earth says hello. <laughs> <laughs> and we saw this as kids. I'm guessing. I definitely so saw it. So it's a kids it. film. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a kids film. I would say so. Yeah, I'm sorry. All I right. won't be able to give you an answer. The film that I just quoted is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory... Oh, I hate that film. Yeah. That remake. So. Yeah, I hate remake. the remake. <laughs> Actually. Well, that's the thing. Like, I don't know if it was critically... Pl- I'm sure it wasn't praised. I'm sure it was mixed to negative reviews. No, it was reviews. panned, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But that is, of um, course, Johnny Depp's iteration of People Willy definitely Wonka. think way highly of Gene Wilder's Yeah, that's a classic. More. Absolutely. Um, that is a shame. That's a Tim Burton film, isn't it? Yes. Tim Burton Oof. film. 2005. Yeah. yeah. Well, that okay. Unfortunately, you had a very good streak, though. I did. Between I did. between the two of us, that was definitely the strongest streak on the show. It's all right. I'll, I'll get it back. I'm gonna go near perfect. <laughs> near perfect. We'll, we'll see if you can get like a nine out of ten sort of situation yeah. going on. So, how have you been, Jake? Yeah, I've been good. I've been busy. It's one of those things where I was like, man, I'm gonna have a lot of career stuff to talk about, and then I sort of sat back and I was like, actually, I got a. I've seen a lot as well. Good. So. Well, it's good to see one of us has seen a lot because I've seen absolutely <laughs> nothing this week. I don't know why. You've had a relaxing week. Well, you, you've been watching something. I have actually to be been fair. watching. I've been making my way through The Office, which was Very added nice. to Netflix a couple of weeks ago. Yep. Um, and I'm starting to turn a corner with it. Like I'm really, I'm enjoying it well enough. I like it that the character, uh, the definitely the the full ensemble was starting to get 
you know, mini story arcs mm. and character arcs and it's definitely course corrected some characters that I had problems with in the earlier seasons. Okay. Um still sometimes I'm a little I have some episodes that I'm like either they haven't aged well or I just don't find them funny. Right. Maybe yeah, they the, been... the humor is definitely I think like people have come out and said like this show would have got cancelled if it aired today. Like there's a lot of humor that is a bit rant raunchy and yeah, pushy, and yeah. I also just don't think it's um particularly funny some of the episodes. Okay. I think the season three opener, which addresses, you know, sort of a you know, LGBT LGBTQ worker in in the workplace mm. is just, it, and it's a season three epi- like episode, so it's not two thousand seven. This would have been so. You know, you got to think adjacently another show, although a different sitcom formula. How I Met Your Mother, I think, tackled it with more more class, and I don't know, just was in a funnier way of tackling it, mm-hmm. but still keeping it. You know. I mean, the fact that their major womanising character is actually gay in real life, I think, was always a thing that they were self-aware of in their cast with Neil Patrick Harris. Right. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I just... I thought that episode just wasn't that funny, and it was just sort of... That was... I don't want to use the word cringe, but it was uncomfortable. <laughs> about cringe. Uncomfortably unfunny. Right. Um, but then they have other episodes what? that are really funny. Yeah, I think that's part of because obviously the we're talking about the US office, of course, and it's based on the UK one, which I think was sort of people liked because and you know we talked about cringe. I always if someone yeah. uses cringe in a film review, I usually just completely decide hate people using cringe unironically. But I think part of the awkwardness that was in the UK version was what they wanted to bring into the US version. Mm. I think you're probably seeing it now is that they're starting to relax a bit more yeah. with that. And I think that was sort of a conscious decision they made after the first season, especially. But um, I don't know. In regards to that, it, it's tricky because, yeah, it's a bit more... Um, I don't know if the office is necessarily trying to handle these subjects with a delicate No, touch. I don't think they are either. But so, yeah. I think at the end of the day... It's still a couple of tiers back from other, like, sitcoms of, like, that, like, you know, I still would the probably Orties. prefer watching How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. And, you know, I would I would rewatch Community a lot more than I would probably... Re- I, don't think, I think after I finish this run, this will be my one time with The Office for a long time. Okay. That's fair enough. Well, there's still a lot to go. Yeah. We've got many, many seasons. Um, I've got to get started on season eight. I've sort of... Having me watching it lately because I always watch it with you know my mum and my sister, so we kind of make an event out of it. So mm-hmm. I can't just sit down and watch it willy nilly. But uh, we might we might meet in the middle towards the end. You never know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I've heard it's a downward trajectory after certain characters either leave or um, you know it's like every show when they wind down generally. Yeah, the yeah. last my... home stretch is never all that good. Yeah, I, I say know... that, but I think Community's last season. I stand by it. I actually think it's very self aware. An impressive season, given they only had half of the ensemble cast by the end. Right. No, that's fair enough. I mean, I've I've can't comment on that because I've I've literally only seen like pretty much a couple of episodes after you know the big one leaves. Of course. Um. I mean, everyone knows that Sip Girl leaves at some point in the office, mm-hmm. but um. So I'll comment on that when I get to that. But yeah, no, I'm glad you're watching the office. We can we can talk about it more. Yeah, which is great. But um, office talk aside, Jake, what mm. else have you caught? So let's week. keep trajectory. We're talking about shows. I just started watching One Division, which is of course the first Marvel series to hit D 
Disney Plus. There's two episodes out at the moment. It's going to be a weekly release. And um, I love it. I think it's awesome. Yeah, so you've been saying or not, it's getting sort of, some people are finding it quite boring. and Yeah, and... I think it's it's critically pl- praised, but I'm seeing a lot of people talk about, they think it's boring, they hate the aesthetic, which is very much dedicated to homaging 50s, 60s sitcoms, and it looks like each episode is going to be a different decade of TV. And I love all that stuff mm-hmm. because I'm just finding it so nifty that how they play with you know, the black and white and, and the aspect ratio and just the, the forms. Like episode one is so clearly on a stage and there is footage that shows they literally had a live audience reacting to it, which I thought was funny. And even the special effects are, like, clearly dumbed down, quote-unquote, to, like, oh, well, this is what they could have done in the 50s. They're not, like, overproducing the special effects, for example. Just the attention to detail to all of that and even the costumes. I just, I love all of that. Mm. So I'm sort of, I don't mind that the the overarching story, which is clearly tackling, like, you know, Wanda's grief and there's sort of this something's not quite white, right um, thing to it all where there's, like, alternate reality shifting. or It's all a mystery. It's a big mystery. And I think... I think a lot of people are just experiencing this fact that it's not a show you can binge because it's not all come out in one go. Mm. I think a lot of people are very upset about that and saying, like, oh, it doesn't work. I'm like, but it's a mystery. Like, it's the water cooler effect. Well, it's a, it's That's a, exactly what it's, it's doing. A, it's a TV show. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're not, we're, only, we're not far removed from when shows only gave you an episode a week and you were, you know... Exactly. You Ten about- years ago, no one ever heard of binging. Exactly. So I think it's good that they're like that. I think they did. I mean, they did the same with Mandalorian and it worked out really well. They would only release it once every week and people would just talk about it. Um, So I don't understand why Star Wars gets a bail on that because no one was complaining about it with Mandalorian and the MCU apparently is. um, Maybe maybe people are just really needing their MCU dose. They they went a year without. Films, so this is too experimental apparently i don't know i i love the fact that the thing i know is like the stakes are like so tiny which mm. i think are great like last year it was you know oh Thanos is going to destroy the universe and now it's like oh no vision's boss is coming for dinner and <laughs> the wife forgot to cook a chicken like i love that i'm just so yeah. into that so I'm, i don't know i'm just i'm ref- it's I'm really ref- the only way they can go with it though because it's like where do you go from having your literal in-game uh, villain? Mm. What do you? What do? You, where do you go after that? If exactly. It's not, if it's not that, because it just unfortunately, it, you have really no other choice in that situation because of um, how high the stakes were with 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 in-game. It's better to just hit the reset button and go back to these smaller, more minute stuff because. I mean, what's what's going to be the first film that comes out? I guess uh. it's still going to be the the Black Widow one, I guess. Because mm. obviously that was meant to come out a while ago now, but mm. um, but I mean that uh, that's a prequel. So to your point, in terms of stakes, it's like well, the overarching stakes don't matter. We know what happens to Black Widow. Yeah. We've seen it. This is just a a story that takes place before. So I kind of agree with you. And like, well. What else are they going to do? One, they just dodge it instead of trying to outdo themselves in terms of stakes and explosions. Do something more experimental, like One Division, where it's just a fun homage to television programs. Mm-hmm. Like, like I just I don't I get how gonna, people didn't I think get it's it. going to pick up. I, I really will. do think it's it's got. Um, you watch the trailer, and you can definitely see that something's going to happen. It's going to ramp up 
at a, at a point in time, but obviously it's not going to ramp up in the first two episodes. Exactly. So like, I don't know why anyone expected all of their questions answered in the pilot. Yeah. That drives me nuts. That uh, it's binging. I think binging has sort of ruined that experience for people. Yeah, I mean, it'd be the equivalent of <clears throat> you know things like Stranger Things and stuff like that. You know, when they mm. came out, it, unfortunately, those shows released all their episodes at once, didn't they? Yeah. So although if you watch if you watched Stranger Things under the like the TV show format, the mystery does uh, you know, unwind episode by episode. Yeah. Um and you doesn't would that be, sound more interesting? Yeah. It I mean I awesome. never watched Stranger Things in one sitting. I used to watch it just sporadically. Yeah. Like I would never go from episode to episode to episode because that's a lot of that's a lot of TV. This is <laughs> a lot of time. Uh, it, we're going to laugh, but keep in mind this is a, this is right at the beginning when mm. Thirteen Reasons came out, and that dropped thirteen mm. episodes all dropped in one go. I watched it. I, I think it was it was a running game with someone that I was seeing at the time. I was watching one episode per day. It's a very strict rule I gave myself, mm. and uh, I didn't break the rule. So it was kind of this cool thing of having that water cooler effect of oh wow this has happened. I can't wait to find out what happens next. But then I would talk to people, and the whole conversation with them just being like, oh, wait until this happens, wait until this happens. It's like, it's not mm. fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a lot of fun last year with season two of Mandalorian, because mm. they only did week-by-week episodes. There was a lot more emphasis on talking about each episode when it came out, you yeah. know, and why it was you know so good to have those like different episodes. And obviously, the finale is the thing that sort of eclipsed all of the episodes, leading up to it but yeah you know, it's like yeah, it had... so when Bill Burr comes back everyone's like oh Bill Burr's back that's sweet exactly you can embrace that because if it all a... came out in one go everyone's going to talk about the final scene well, and no take... one's going to talk about exactly. Bill Burr. and it would also take away from probably one of his best scenes of acting that he's ever done to right. be honest but like you said each part of the story gets more room to breathe when people talk about the show yeah absolutely it's more interesting and I've seen people say oh it's bad for business I'm like in what world is it bad for business for a show to come out periodically it's on a streaming service. That makes no sense to me. But it's... even so, like people can't just get the free trial, watch it all in one day, and then bounce. You're more encouraged to keep your subscription and pay monthly mm. if the show comes out over the course of a yeah, month well or two. Well said. Well said. So I never mm. got any of that, but I'm loving Wonder mm. Fond Division. I think it's excellent. And I'm loving your Disney Plus account. <laughs> <laughs> you cheeky uh. monkey. What else have you got? Uh, so moving from Disney Plus to Netflix, I watch Pieces of a Woman been waiting to, I've been leading up to watching that but okay. I haven't watched it yet it's I'm curious what you would think I think the opening like 30 minutes is excellent probably my favorite like opening to any film from the last year and then for me it kind of I kind of didn't like where it went from that point so a lot of people talk about films like Saving Private Ryan and, and like even Up which I don't necessarily agree with as films are like the opening's incredible but then it's just sort of it all dives from that point on, where mm. the most interesting part is the beginning of the film. Definitely wouldn't agree with that with Up. Oh, for sure. I know I'm with you, but I've heard people say that, and it infuriates me, but I get why they say that. And even Saving Private Ryan, wow. That's like two films I would yeah. wholeheartedly disagree no, I'm, with. I'm absolutely with you, but those are things people said. I would say The Devil All the Time is a great example of that. That's a great example. The first 30 minutes is better than the rest of the film. And Oh, the first 30 and the last 30 are good, I think. Okay, that's fair enough. But yeah, for me personally, I was... The Robert Patterson conclusion is pretty great. Okay. the I, This one, like I said, I think it opens wonderfully. It really grabs you. There's a 22-minute one-take in the film, which is outstanding. But then 
without getting too much into the plot, I don't want to. I sort of expected it to be one thing. I sort of a more claustrophobic sort of one location type film where these two can talk about grief and open up and it's not really anything like that at all. The story opens up way more than that. Mm -hmm. And there's all of this stuff about a court trial and there's all this sort of these little things that the couple are doing to each other behind their backs. And I just wasn't into any of it. I just, I was like, I I feel like I've seen this. I don't know. It just wasn't what I was looking for, which I thought was a big shame. I was looking for more of that Malcolm and Marie type thing that we might get next month. Yeah, well, but, which um, I'm very much looking forward to that. It's yeah. getting a lot of pan for the age difference. Oh, really? Yeah, I saw a lot of uh, articles talking about is it. Complaining is it that about... much of an age difference, though? I don't know. Well, we thought John I'm sure Bader Zendaya is at least mid-20s. Yeah. How old's he? He's probably in his late 30s. Yeah, it's probably maybe a 10-year gap. Yeah. I'm... People just look at things to complain See, about. See, now I'm actually kind of... I'm going to look this up, Zeke. This article. <laughs> no, well, not the art. So it's an article that specifically. Yeah, it was talking that. about the age difference is too much. Okay, well, I'm just going to look at the age difference myself. So John David Washington was born in 1984. He is 36. It's mid 30s. And Zendaya. How do you. Oh, I know how to spell Zendaya. Look at that. And she was born in 96. Oh, so, so she's 24. I guess there's a 12 year age gap. She's basically our age. That's crazy. Um, Basically a year older than both of us. Um. Who cares? She's 26. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I saw a scene from it and I, la- I laughed at it. So I thought... Oh, really? that's, uh, is it being released for Valentine's Day? Is that the... I think it's like very early February. So okay. it's a little before that. I don't think this is like a lovey-dovey Valentine's This looks way more... Have you seen the trailer for it? No. Oh, the, yeah, I think it was the trailer. Oh, okay. But it's like that scene where he's like... He's complaining about her and then he says he loves her. Oh, Okay. I mean that I don't feel like that's going to be representative of the tone of the whole film. Yeah, that's fair enough. It feels way more eerie and Shirley esque than that. Yeah, be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So what else have we caught, buddy? Um, I watched the Empire of Dreams, which is a two and a half hour documentary about Star Wars, the original trilogy in the making of it. Mm. So it's things that you know we've seen. I've definitely seen bits of this doco before, but I I really loved it. It was very in depth, very great. Um, really goes into the minutia of... Was that on Netflix or... Uh, it's on did? Disney+. Plus. I was going to say. It and like... what's interesting is that when it opens, it actually has, like, this is an altered, like, edited version, which I was surprised by. I was like, oh, I don't know what that... You know, I think it was. I think I saw, when they're showing John Williams' score, a lot of the people were blurred in the orchestra. Right. So it might have just been they're blurred because there's some streaming rights thing that doesn't compute with the DVD release. I. Yeah. That's probably all it was. Empire of Dreams. Empire of Dreams, that's the one. It's very good. I recommend you watch it. There's a lot in it. Um, it's very detailed. You even see, like, they actually do, like, the pan down of all the documents that George Lucas signed for, like, sequel rights and stuff. It's very detailed. Mm. So if you're into filmmaking, that's great. And, one of uh, our ex-tutors was... Didn't he walk into her booth one time or something? Editing booth? One of our what's this? previous tutors? Uh, oh, um, she's actually met George Lucas. I don't know if it was an editing... I think it was. I think it was. was. It? Yeah, she actually okay. met George Lucas. That's pretty cool. In the editing suite. Yeah. When she was at, was it UC, U, whatever. I, she was always going on about it. Right. Her, yeah, her I, I, I definitely won't remember the specifics of that. But no, it's true. We had a tutor that did meet George Lucas. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I want to talk about for... I've got some stuff I've seen in regards to our director of the week, our director's corner. So yes. would you rather me talk about that in her discussion? 
I would probably, yeah. I okay, would probably cool. Like well, in that up. case, the last thing I watched was voicemails from strangers. This is from the YouTuber Austin McConnell, who mm. we're both quite familiar with. Mm-hmm. He's one of my favorite YouTubers. And it's essentially a 47-minute film. It's actually three seconds shorter than Disconnected. There you go. Which I thought was quite funny. Um, and he counts as a feature, so... There you you should go. trade uh, trade DVDs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so the idea is that he pretty much asked the internet one day like how their day was. He received a little over 6,000 voicemails. So this documentary is sort of a, just an edit of a lot of the responses he got, the voicemails. And uh, I really enjoyed it. It feels like Queen Scotty's younger, louder cousin mm. because there's a lot of stock footage with the voiceovers playing under it. But it was just quite therapeutic. So I, mm. I quite liked it for that. It had a very slice of life felt because it's just people. It's just random people talking about yeah. their days, and it gets you know it gets nice and sweet and funny and sad and it hits all those right beats. So I thought it was quite great, and it's on YouTube. I recommend it. I selfishly wish there was a COVID version of this because this was recorded back in like 2019, I think. Yeah. Um. So I, I would have been way more fascinated by what people would have said during lockdown times. Well, maybe he'll do a sequel. Maybe. I would honestly love that. Um, but yeah, in terms of films I watched unrelated to my Chloe Zowathon, huh. then uh, that's it for me. No worries. Well, we'll move into career sections because you have a couple of updates in regarding your career. I do. So I we talked about... Well, actually, we haven't really talked about it as much at all, but I was on the set of a short film called Castratrix. I was on for two days because I was fairly busy doing some other stuff as well. But... Um, it's an honest film that's been done at Murdoch, and uh, it is very provocative and very uh, out there and interesting. So uh, I really don't know what I'm allowed to say on that, mm. but that was something that... I'm intrigued to see how it turns out. Yeah. There's a great photo of me. Well, I sent you the photo, didn't oh, that's I? that's amazing. It's a great photo where I was trying to pose... That basically, one of the characters is almost fully nude, and there's like this whole thing that they've set up with this like dark moody lighting with this like guy from gas gas mask and it's like this it's like this very think of the think of the suction machine from monsters inc but like really really messed up mm. and dark like there's sort of that going in the background and then there's me in focus on the forefront i was trying to pose like all confused and i think it came off like more angry <laughs> than i was meant to <laughs> but it's still a great photo um so, yeah, um, there'll probably be more news on that later in the year, but that is very interesting. Probably the most wild thing I've ever read. So, we'll see about that. I also conducted the interviews for The Raven, the short film from last mm-hmm. year. So, uh, that was fun. I got to interview uh, some of the cast and crew. And, again, it's like, I don't know what I'm allowed to say. I'll say that the doco that I'm doing for the film should come out alongside the film. Easy. Like, on the same day. Easy, very exciting stuff. So, yeah. And a little notice for everyone, if you own a drone and you want your commercial drone license, it's actually free to do so before the 28th of this month. So, if you have a drone, you live in Perth, get on it now because it'll be free to get your commercial license before the 28th of January. you got a bit of, little over a week. Got a bit of a window. So, uh, I did it. You should do it too. But, uh, yeah, that was my week, Zeke. No dramas. Well, it's time for us to move. Into our film of the week. But Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Nomadland. Welcome to Badland Spa. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! Gotta make the hole bigger. <laughs> I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Oh! He's gonna come right through the glass. 
my dad used to say, what's remembered lives. I maybe spent too much of my life just remembering. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. Let's just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. And I do. I see them again. And I can be certain in my heart, I'll see you again. A woman embarks on a journey through the American West after losing everything during the recession. Mm, the recession. This is our recession, recession. 21st Director's Corner. That's a good point. Yeah, it's our it's Chloe. 21st? No, it's a 26th. What? No. no. 25th. 21st. It is our 21st, 21st. yep. Yes, math. I numbers. Math. <laughs> Mathematical. You can see I'm not a math major. Uh, well, no. Da, da, bum, no, it's our first mm. one since doing uh, episode 100. First so one for season three. Exactly. Yeah, this is kind of the kind of the first episode of season three in a lot it of ways. Is. Yeah. Um, like yeah. So Chloe's out. Yeah, I got some facts to throw at you. You throw them about Miss Chloe don't, Zhao. Don't throw them too hard. Okay, I'll throw softballs. Softballs. All right. Cool. <laughs> um. So here's some facts about her regarding No Man Land. But this is her third feature. She has a short on Letterbox that I was able to. Well, short listed on Letterbox. Mm-hmm. Letterbox is our only short that I that I managed to catch in the last week. Um. Here's some facts about No Man Land and about her specifically. So the film won the Golden Lion and the People's Choice Awards, respectively, at Venice and Toronto. First time a film has ever done that. Win both those uh, top awards at those festivals. That's pretty impressive. Um, she also won the Directing Awards of the Boston Society Film Critics Awards, the Los Angeles Film Critic Awards, Chicago Films Critics Association Awards, Florida Film Critics Circle Awards, the North Carolina Film Critics Associ- Association Awards, and, of course, is the front runner for the Best Director at the Academy. It'll be the second female to win that. Academy. Mm. Um, we have done the other one on this show. We have, yeah. A couple of director corners go. Yeah. Look at that. So we're on, we're on the money, Zeke. But um, this film has also appeared in 35 different critics. Number one best film of 2020. Um, I, from everything that I've sort of seen from the, the Oscar predictions mm-hmm. and all of that, this is absolutely the front runner. runner. The competition well, you did was throw doing... it into your nominations last week on the show, I did, too. yeah. I gave a little shout-out for my favourite 2020 films. Uh, I don't think it's my favourite 2020 film, but it's definitely up there in terms of films that are definitely going mm. to be nominated for Oscars. This is the best yeah, one of them. The only reason it didn't make my list last week was mm. uh, simply because I knew we were going to do it this week on the show, and technically right. it would be in contention for our third annual awards, so I excluded it from my list. Yeah. Well, I think that's also bright byproduct of I caught it on Boxing Day when it came mm-hmm. out last year. You caught it earlier this year. So I think we sort of both are putting on different year checkpoints in our yeah. heads because of that simply. But um, So yes, we've both seen the film. It's currently not in cinemas. I was a little upset. I wanted to watch it a second time before today's episode. Really? Is it yeah. already out? Well, I think it's. Um, I think it will come back. Okay. Um, I'll probably explain in more detail what the release plan is. You know, at the end yeah, of, of course. the discussion. But um, the point I'm trying to make here is that Chloe's hour is getting phenomenal 
praise and, and awards contention for this film. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be cool to talk a bit about her style. Yeah, of course. For her oh. third feature, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, yeah, all things considered, um, there's an interesting kind of backstory to this film with, obviously, her trying to work around her MCU, because she's obviously penciled in under an MCU mm-hmm. contract yep. for Disney, um, for the Immortals. Uh, the ex- Eternals? Eternals. Close enough. <laughs> There's like 46 of them. I mean, of course, this is what Disney do. They pick up these, you know, just, you know, up-and-coming directors and yeah. they, they pencil them in before, you know, they get too, too big and probably get them yeah, at a sure. relatively cheaper rate, I imagine. I mean, even if you look at, like, Taika Waititi... I mean, I'm pretty sure those were his first Oscar noms for Jojo Rabbit, mm. which obviously was his first film after working with Marvel. So mm. you're right in the sense that Disney have actually done, or I should say Kevin Feige of Marvel specifically, has done really well at handpicking directors mm. because they kind of nabbed them at just the right time. Because you're right, uh, she had to shoot this film while simultaneously working on the pre-production of the Marvel film. And obviously pre-production of a $500 billion film is not as simple as sitting in a couple of meetings. Yeah. So and I mean, Favreau's been doing it a lot more with Star Wars and stuff like mm. that. That more in, that more intellectual property. So, yep. um, yeah, obviously uh, that's very interesting. This film was sort of shot around that schedule and edited by her. Just you yeah. know, it's a bit of a contract loophole film. This one, I think it was. <laughs> I'm not sure there's like it would have soured their relationship. Obviously, given the praise No Man Land is getting, Disney well, I- are probably loving the fact that this film is out there. I think I read somewhere, I, I can't remember if it was directly from Chloe Zhao's mouth or not, but I remember reading that there was a bit of a concern about the contention, more specifically because there was Foxlight Studios mm-hmm. that are, or Searchlight that are distributing this film. Yes. But of course, Disney have since bought 20th Century Fox, so it kind of became a non-issue. Yes. Which is quite ironic. So that's kind of how I think it worked out. Yeah. Overall. That being said, even if they hadn't acquired Fox, I don't imagine there would be too much of an issue due to just how positive praise this film is getting, I think. Um, yeah, for they sure. Would, especially if they've already got this director contracted in, it just would help them being like, look, we have a potential Oscar-winning director directing one of our Marvel properties. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Like, you're, the Disney must be, like, so thrilled about the success of this film. And I think Disney are actually distributing the DVD Blu-ray release later this year. There so, you go. Um, they're directly hands-on with it now. But, um, yeah, I think Chloe Zhao's a really interesting filmmaker. As you kind of compare him, we have a friend who um, did his third year film recently, Jed Cowper. Mm. And I remember saying to you, we talked a bit about his short film that he just put out. And I remember telling you, I was almost more interested in his decisions mm. about making the film more than the film itself. Mm. And I get that same vibe with Chloe Zhao. Uh, you're right. First of all, she's writer, director, and editor, and producer. So she's very hands-on for this stuff. But having watched... So I watched The Writer, Mm -hmm. which was her... um, Did you enjoy it? I enjoyed it. It's very, very similar to Nomadland. Mm, I've heard that. Yeah. I heard it goes... I was going... I was mean to watch it. I didn't get around to watching it. Right. um, But I have heard it's it's obviously got the same sort of uh, pace. Very similar pacing. Very, like, thin, furrow plot line. Um, I, I think I appreciate it more than I like it. Um, I'll, I can think differently of No Man Land. I much more love No Man Land as mm. well as appreciating what it's about. Um, I mean, you're right. The writer is, is very similar where it sort of takes these non-actors and puts them on the screen and makes them shine. And yeah. she seems to have the ability to do that. It's more focused on um, people of 
uh, Native American traditions and uh, people with disabilities like ABI and autism and stuff. So I think that's where the writer comes down on that front. And I want to quickly shout out her short film Daughters from 2010, which uh, I'm pretty sure is a more traditional cast of actual actors, mm. but it actually is a bit more ra- uh, rooted in her Chinese background and actually takes place in rural China and is a bit more of a critique on their culture and how... You know, they're having a third child, so they've got to get rid of the second child. And um, it's a bit more of a, a relaxed story like that. Not really the American critique that she would go on to make mm-hmm. many, many times. But um, the things I, I, from a direction I thought was so similar was the, the her wide landscape photography and the nat- use of her natural lighting. And everything. I thought that was wonderfully like utilized over and over again. I think that's something that she's absolutely a staple for now the way this one's a shot. So, yeah. Um, let's talk specifically more about Nomadland. Yes. Um, I When I first heard about this film, I was like, this, the premise is excellent. Mm-hmm. The idea of Frances McDormand playing this character, a woman in her 60s, who has to become a nomad through, you know, basically through these means of which... Obviously, it's the fallout of the global financial crisis in America. Which, exactly. So it's um, got that sort of commentary about the American West or just American general. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, how, it, how the, the, the middle, middle lower class really suffered in America. Mm-hmm. I think um, if you've watched things like, you know, The Big Short, you can get a, an idea of how the GFC um, happened right. and... This is definitely a film that really elaborates who actually suffered in that sort of event, like these lower middle class people that um, basically just, yeah, ended up having next to nothing. Well, it's a a much more human story where it doesn't really... uh, I mean, The Big Short is a bit more fun and it sort of looks at the people who aren't as drastically affected. But you're right, in this film, it's very much a human story about the people who... Mm. these These are their lives now. Yeah, I, I think obviously McKay has a different way. He was trying to pres- he took a very complex and somewhat boring issue that most people went and then turned right. put a fun and entertaining spin on it. Yeah. So, well, I think I think the kind of what works about this film is that I went into it being like, wow, this is going to be a wonderful critique of America, but also it's going to be a human story with Francis McDormand, and I kind of went in being like, there actually doesn't really touch all that much on the the economical political side of it like it's it's obviously a backdrop for the film mm-hmm. it can't exist without it but they don't focus on it at all and what i kind of loved and this is something i realized you know over the next week or two after having seen it is it's a very warm and inviting film i loved being in that environment i loved meeting those mm-hmm. people i loved the music and the look of it i loved all of that it felt inviting and it actually you know, people get worried about, you know, misery porn, which is something like you look at most recently the new Ron Howard film, Hillbilly Elegy, and that's a lot of people's complaints about their film is, oh, it's, you know, taking these people's miseries and putting it on the screen. And it's mm. like, this film does the opposite. This film makes it kind of enticing in a way where there is a beautiful side to the to what's happened to these people. Yeah, absolutely. There is an essence of... um sort of lost souls or people mm. searching for something. Yeah. Um, and they're not really in a rut. Like, or, and I really like, I think you're right. I think inviting is a good way of, but it doesn't, rom- I don't think it romanticizes no. the, the lifestyle. Like something like Into the Wild definitely does in the first half of the film. It's very, 
Um, obviously, it does work, and I really love that film, but yep. it does walk both there, like the good and the bad in that lifestyle. But it's heavily way more dramatised than this film. This film is an obs- This film walks that documentary line. Um, Absolutely. Point. I mean, yeah. the fact that they're. With the exception of, of Francis McDormand herself and... Um, uh, David Streifan? How do you pronounce that name? Uh, Streifan. Streifan. David Streifan. And I want to give a shout-out to Cat Clifford, who's actually oh. only in all of Zoe Klaus' films. But I think those are the only three people who who have other film credits. And, I mean, at the end of the day, and they actually are actors, the very thin plot thread or character arts you could pick up are between uh, definitely Strifen's character and, and McDormand's character. They right. are the only one that have kind of a of a, a, a plot character moment, I think. I think, like, the the whole scene when they go to yeah, his son's house and mm-hmm. he's sort of become settled in... in f- He's no longer running away from sort of his family, sort of embracing it and trying to be a, a yeah, grandfather. he's sort of settled into That's the really house. the only through-line plot... Um, well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that because, and again, it's like we're using the word plot very loosely in this scenario. There are like sort of story threads where you can talk about her relationship with her, you know, late husband and opening up about that. Uh, there is sort of she. I think this is part of it is the mm. whole quote. And, you know, I'll see you down the road. Is that she sort of bumps into the same person a couple of times over, and there are little arcs that continue with yeah. that. But like like I said, it's like the it's hard to call them plots. They're more like little baby arcs. I think character development would be better. Like like mm. his character does develop and undergo some form of character arc, whereas yeah. people, the real people are like they like you said they you just meet them at sort of different landmarks in the story, mm-hmm. and they sort of give their their backstories, their lives, and they react to this sort of character profile they've built up for Francis McDormand's character. Yeah. And they don't ever, obviously, because they're not, the thing is, for them, their goals are actually just their personal lives and their personal goals. And um, I find that really, yeah, fascinating all around how they've somehow managed to create a film that is both a a film and a documentary and not do something like what American Animals did, which is very Mm, overtly mm. going, this is both. You beat me of. to it, yeah. Um, this one is <laughs> kind of dizzying and confusing because you really don't know what's real and what's not at times. Because, I mean, I, I was I was lucky. I did pick up the David Strife and, like, while I was watching it, I was like, oh, he's that main actor from Good Night and Good Luck. That's the right, first yeah, thing yeah, I yeah, yeah. knew of him. And he also, he's also in, like, Godzilla and stuff. Like, he's in a few things. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I didn't pick but up on that, to your point. he's pretty unrecognisable in terms of how he looks compared to what he normally looks like. He's got a grown-out beard, grown-out hair. It's just his voice was the only giveaway. And, right. And, you know, Frances McDormand is... I mean, she's unrecognisable. People don't recognise her in this story. Um, well, I don't I don't think it's that. This isn't, like, the Borat thing. No. Like, it, I'm sure they all know who Frances McDormand is. They know it's a movie. But I've always. I, I, it's not like Borat where they're pretending it's not a movie. No. Um, so that's what I find interesting. Okay. Um, how they've managed to get real, real moments like mm. in it, like from people, like like how she's managed to direct something that's so genuine, but 
but doesn't from feel contrived and forced. Yeah, yeah, it makes it feel authentic. Because you're right. There's a scene, and I want to talk a bit about the scene later. But there's the Bob Wells character, who I love his voice. He's got an incredible voice, and telling the story about his son who committed suicide, and it's like that's a real person talking about their real son mm-hmm. who allegedly doesn't talk about the story. And you're right. It's you wonder what Chloe Zhao as a director was able to do to get this man to tell that story on screen mm-hmm. to an actress, to Frances McDormand, not necessarily Fern, although mm-hmm. she's excellent. We'll talk about her in a minute. It, it, you're right. It's so fascinating. And I, I definitely compared this film and the writer to to American Animals, where I think this one's a bit more subtle, of course. Absolutely. That it's. I mean, there are direct um, things that affect the story, like mm. as. It, they, it, the real people are interacting with the actors. Yeah. I I just, I think, because we look at something like American Animals where it's used as a stylistic effect to merge the real people and the, and the people playing themselves. Yeah. And then you've got something like Borat, which is just actors going into the real world and tricking people. Mm-hmm. And I think this film is sort of somewhere in the middle where they just found people who aren't their job. They're not actors. That's not their jobs. But... She has a way with these people to make them shine on screen. Mm-hmm. So when they do perform, it's not really much of a performance because they're just being their authentic selves. Yeah. And I think that's more to her, um, Chloe Zhao's casting abilities, if you call it casting, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, a lot of those, like the Bob Wells story and such, are mm-hmm. still presented in documentary. Um, simple coverage, you Very mean? simple coverage. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's too adjacent close-up shots on, like, sort of a 45-degree angle. Like, yeah. it's... Um, and so it's very much... I, I can imagine those situations... One-take-wonder like, sort of thing? Absolutely. I think it would yeah. have just been, you know, her, like, probably Frances McDormand undergoing... She probably would have had to have gone out of character in some of those bits, I imagine. Cause yeah, probably. There's probably a good chance her shots might have just been reactionary shots to what had been said maybe i don't know how you'd work around that or yeah they might have had a second camera but she would have had to obviously undertake probably a more documentarian stance because you can't imagine like chloe zhao asking questions to wells's character directly it would have had to have been a more performative documentary sort of yeah, in a, in a sense, I mean... Unless it's just them filming a conversation, which that is a different... Like, those two having a conversation and all the crew, like, removing themselves right. and sitting I, in a village or something. It's interesting. I like... We're sort of taking different things away from this because my, my theory is, yeah, it, it very much presents itself in this authentic way where it feels like a camera's are slapped on these situations. Mm-hmm. I'm, I was always under the impression that there is, like, someone coming in for Slate. All right, scene... You know, 39, alpha, take one, click. I said click, it's more of a clap. But, like, I, I I feel like the general process of making a narrative film was still applied here. Yeah. Like, I, I think, obviously, in that case, with Bob Wells, th- there was a discussion ahead, like, are you okay with telling the story? All right, let's go take one. Let's try and do this and yeah. nail it straight away. We don't need to tell the story multiple times. That's sort of how I saw it. But, I mean, you could be absolutely right. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, I would have loved to have, if they ever released a documentary about how they made this film. That would be yeah. really intriguing, I think. That's got to exist somewhere, surely. Um, I I really like... I mean, obviously, they and there were certain scenes where it definitely... It was... Obviously, they were telling stories and stuff, mm-hmm. and 
Um, yeah, that was all very intriguing how they worked around that, you know, because... Well, it's probably why um, Chloe Zhao sort of edited it herself, and the only other thing she's edited of her own work is her very first film, which I haven't seen, but I imagine that there was a lot of stories, a lot of content, much like a documentary, mm-hmm. right, where she just sort of had to weave through what would make the most coherent narrative out of what they had. Yeah, I mean, I just think it's really interesting when you look at, like, when, you know, Frances McDormand's character sitting in the and looking after Swanky, who's quite mm. sick and ill, and um, just the coverage in that scene, I always found really interesting how they managed to... Because the camera... I think there's only one camera, really, in that scene. Okay. And it punches in a couple of times, but... Oh, that's a good pickup. Um, that's what they were doing, yeah. Um, but I think it's only one camera. Um, and there's another one with Linda May, same thing, where the camera's sort of just in an awkward position, but the only reason it's in an awkward position is it was probably the only place that they could put it. Right, yeah. So it's like, it's not not necessarily... Sometimes they don't go for... Yeah, there was practicality shots, which makes it feel more documentarian than... Yeah. Uh, cinematic because and then they have shots that are incredibly cinematic you know like you know when she's walking through the uh the sort of the, the, the rv the... park and the, yeah, the yeah. golden hour lights streaming down and it's yeah catchy. that's wonderful and i find that really interesting and even a lot of the stuff that happens in the uh the mining town towards the end where she's walking through the empty houses and like she goes into her own house it's mm. that is just haunting how quiet it is too, and they really want. They, I love the choices they have with when they use absence of music and and when they choose to bring in those scores. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I, the soundtrack's incredible. Mm. It's so good. I'm pretty sure it's all like source music. Like I don't think they made any music for this film, but it's it just is beautiful. It really is. Um, I mean that you're right. I, I the sense I got from that very last scene where she's returning home and you're right it is kind of cold and quiet and that's like i only just thought of this now but i guess that is sort of the thing of she doesn't want to turn around she doesn't want to go back to empire Mm -hmm. or where she went and it is sort of a let's keep trucking forward mentality i mean this segues pretty perfectly into let's talk about fern specifically Mm -hmm. i mean the point which is incredible i love that for the first time she really does get to carry a film because she's great in fargo she's great in free billboard she's great in moonrise kingdom but she's part of an excellent ensemble in all of those films. Yeah, of course. This is the first time that you're right. She's really pulling the load. Well, it's just her. Yeah. I mean, at times I do think it's that would have been the way to get some of those performances out would have been McDormand taking the, the lead yeah. um, on it and sort of interacting in the scene and, and Zhao was very much there just to sort of capture it like in a documentary, mm. you know? I mean... Uh, you know, the director and the the host of a documentary can be two different people. They don't have to be the same person. So I do think some of those, particularly the ones where where they're doing the sit-down conversation, um, I think, uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff would have definitely been her genuine, you know, sometimes playing Fern as a character, but just her as even reacting as a person to these stories, I think is... Yeah, yeah. It's... A fascinatingly complex, it'd be a fascinatingly complex role to take on. Yeah, uh, I think you kind of nailed it on the head. There's the un, there's the untalked about thing or the uh the, the unwritten rule, I guess if that's the best way to put it, that she's working with a lot of non-actors and that's a task in and of itself. Mm. You know, and 
I love that you're probably right. I think there's a lot of her in this role as opposed to someone like Mildred from Free Billboards, for example. I got a lot of Marge from Fargo in this a little bit. There is a bit of a, a nicety, yeah, naivete. A... You know what? I just remember this. Now, I, it's been weeks since I've seen the films. I apologize if I'm a little vague in some of this. I just remember the scene when she's got like, it, it's like the glass that, that it was like her husband's. Oh, the plates? Yeah, the plates, sorry. And, and the guy drops it mm-hmm. and he, it shatters all over the floor. I freaking love that scene because I had to stop myself from swearing then. Mm. Um, I love that scene so much because it's the first time we, we see what she's like when she's angry, like authentically angry where yeah. she's, she's like, just leave. But she doesn't, she doesn't, it's not dramatized angry. It's just, no. it's a very human angry. It's just go away, leave me yeah. alone. Uh, like, it's a real moment. It's a real, like, you really feel it. Like, I got to see this Oh, my theatre, like, gasped when the, when he dropped the plates. Yeah, <laughs> I, got to, I got to see that. Um, We often talk about Luna Lederville, but I got to see it at Luna SX, which is the oh, Fremantle Luna. There you go. Um, I saw it at Luna It was really cold. Um, oh, really? Yeah, they, they put the aircon <laughs> on to, like, 200. Backlot's um, very cold, too, isn't it? it? It's crazy how cold it is. Yeah. Backlot and stuff. Strong aircon. Um, <laughs> I'm still hurting from my once screening. Um, Poor baby. But, um, yeah, uh, to be honest, um, her performance is definitely one of the the cornerstones of why this film's so successful because she has to work with a lot of non-actors and give... make it really... So it's one thing for for an actor to envelop into a character of a film, but Fern doesn't feel like a character. She feels like a person. It's a little mm. different. Like, you know, you brought up her three billboards and her Fargo performance, and I actually think a Fargo performance is a good one to cite because... They feel kind of similar. She feels like a human in Fargo, mm. you know, and Cohen and the Cohen brothers do that really well. Um, they often can make characters that are kind of zany and cartoonish, but... They can also make incredibly grounded human characters mm. to, and they have to in order to juxtapose them. And they, that was quite a their their formula for success in a lot of their early '90s films, in particular. Mm. And I would say I even go and say into their mid, you know, their '80s films. But um, definitely in this film, it's really interesting to kind of capture. Just yeah, like her, like I said, like her attitudes and her, her the way she goes about doing things and. You almost forget, yeah. You forget this is a Oscar-winning actress. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sometimes, and you just think she's a person living in a van. Yeah. She really got stuck into this role. Like everything from, she never dresses to look, uh, like no sexualized. She dresses dresses totally practically. Um, yeah, there's several scenes where she's sort of you know trying to go to the toilet, and it's it's not a very flattering angle. Uh-huh. And um, she even goes nude. I completely forgot about that. She's completely nude in this Yeah, movie. and it's just, it. it's so... It's all for the artistry. I like that. Yeah, it's just at the end of the day, you're really just trying to capture this nomadic lifestyle. And you, you mm. do, part of you, you know, obviously feels for these people because they've all dealt with loss in some yes. capacity. Or they're, they're like, and that's a really fascinating exploration in itself. But there's they're definitely a romantic, like, there's a, there's a sort of... The fact that they emphasize the community. I mean, this film mm. is a, the, the end of the this film is about people. Like that's that's really and not explore like just exploring people and their journeys and like you know well it's life on life on the road for the nomadic lifestyle and yeah. I don't think it ever tries to like 
say, oh, this is the life. Like, it's not like a super romantic. No, depiction. like you said, it's not romanticizing it, but there is a sense of beauty to it where it doesn't feel like it's the worst thing in the world. And I think that's part of what so I was. It's not misery. Yeah. It's, it's not, not misery. Yeah. And I was a little surprised because I went into this thinking, oh, it's going to be a very sharp <clears throat> commentary on the American system and how the government don't look after their people. And then half the film spends its time telling you that Fern kind of wants to live this life and, mm-hmm. and she won't when her sister invites her home or, or it's, you know, the, fill the car with gas or like she sort of wants to do it all on her own. She it's, wants to go It's on escapism. Yeah. And I think that that's what it's really trying. These people on the road, they were trying to escape something and they feel suffocated by um, reminders of the past. And that's really emphasized when she does go back to Empire and she sits in her home and then she just walks out and they do that really good... That classic Seekers door frame I shot. I the same thing, but then um, we go out with her. I like yeah, that. And we go, yeah, so it's it's doing yeah. a homage and then putting your own spin on it. Yeah, um, exactly. And I'm pretty sure all those shots are bookend when she's driving back. It's the same mm-hmm. shots when she first left, but I think... like Because she's given multiple angle. times, like with her sister, mm-hmm. with... Uh, I think it's Jim, is his name? Um, Let's uh, Dave. 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah, Dave, Dave, Dave David. Yeah. Pretty much everyone has the same name as their... Actor, except for Francis's fern, yeah, which is close enough. <laughs> um, so yeah, and like you know, he gives her an opportunity to stay with her, and he, he can see. And yeah. you know, we go to this farm, and they really do emphasize how warm and welcoming this farm lifestyle is. There's all of these animals, it's beautifully green, it's very lush and very like a romantic farm, like yeah. it's literally, you know, it's, it's like a babe definition. But then they, sh- they show her when she she can't sleep in the room. She has to sleep in the van. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what kind of threw me off when I first saw this because I was ex- really expecting it to be like, these people don't have any other choice. They This is the life they have to live because mm-hmm. of the sort of the societal situation that they're in. And no, the film challenges that because like, no, there's a part of Fern that wants to do this. She is in nomad land. Or nomad, rather, at heart. Yeah, and I think the like at the end of the day, what they're trying to do is they like with Dave's character, they show he's quite disconnected from his family because of mm. just how he didn't. He wasn't an active parent, as he says. But as Fern says to him, he can be an active grandparent. You know, so when he finally concedes to give up the life and he starts neglecting, like when Fern rocks up, he she sees that his van is like kind of neglected now, and yeah. he's like, "Oh, I just didn't. I didn't notice. I didn't notice." Um, it's very much he's tied up the loose ends. He's fixed. He's mended his relationship with his family. He's mm. willing to be an active grandparent. For Fern. Until she gets over the death of her husband, like really gets over it, mm. she'll always be out there because she's searching for that kind of conclusion. And she may have, like, the whole thing is she may not get it. Like, and I think we see that, that conclude, that bookend conclusion with, you know, when, when Swanky passes away. Mm. And that sort was of, sad. That was very sad. Yeah. And it, I think it is, um, you know, it, it, it all comes back to that seeing you down the road mantra, you know? Yeah. And you're right, going back to Empire, but then deciding to just move forward. And mm. I, it, I definitely wasn't surprised by like the ending, the idea of that this is just going to continue to go on. Um, and I actually, I like that it sort of stuck with its period. Like obviously, you look at the log line, and it, it says the 2011 recession specifically. Mm-hmm. But they actually kind of dedicate to that. And there's even a scene where she walks past a screening of Avengers on the theater, 
Yeah. Which I thought was a little nod. I was like, oh, the most highly grossing film of all time. I, I thought that was a little clever capitalistic thing. You know what I wish they did as well in terms of sort of capitalistic visual storytelling that I thought they could have dug in deeper. She works at Amazon mm-hmm. towards the beginning of the film. And the end. And, and I love the idea of like the big sort of corporate factory where people are boxing just crap up for people and this is their living. Mm. And I, I wish they went into a little further. Maybe we got a peek into one of the boxes' ferns you know, taping up and it's just like junk in there or some random, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I I liked the Amazon stuff. I think it was, what that's trying to do though is, you know, it's seasonal employment. Mm. And although the system, at the end of the day, what it's trying to say is, yes, the system did lead to kind of her life falling apart. She's still a part of the system. She can't, it, I don't think this film is completely anti-establishment. No. Um, and... Um, there are enough um, social commentary points in there to be like, okay, yes, the, the system is wrong and it does mess people's lives up, but it's also, you know, gives a lot of these people, her and, you know, um, was it May, oh, sorry, beg my pardon, uh, Linda May's character, it gives mm-hmm. them a form of seasonal employment and income. So, and they do that bit where they sit at the, the lunch table and they're just all chatting to each other. And it's yeah. very much, it's trying to put humans behind this this monolithic capitalistic agenda, you know? And I like that sort of, because there's enough in there, you know, like mm. when um, Fern's sister's husband, is they're talking about real estate and sort of oh, poking yeah, at this. There's definitely enough in there that some, to emphasise... Some people are incredibly obsessed with greed and materialism and, and love the capitalistic system, but they're always just opposed to the people that are very minimalist who live live that nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing. I actually kind of like the insight into the seasonal work because that's something I'm not actually really all that familiar with is people that they do certain jobs at certain times of the year and then mm-hmm. that's just their living is doing yeah. all these different jobs, but at a certain time of the year, it's very... What's the word? Like it's on a schedule, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm I'm so used to the idea of. I mean, obviously, you know, as filmmakers, we're used to like gigs, and we're going to do this job and this job and this job, um, but it's not quite the same as seasonal work. It's a little bit more no sporadic than that. Um, but I, I it, again, I think you're right. It kind of speaks to the idea that there is no safety net for these people, and there's a scene where Fern is sort of not arguing, but she's talking to that. The, sort of the, the I, I forget the term, but she's the one that suggests, you know, oh, maybe it's time to go into retirement. She's like, no, I need work. I want to work. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I like that that was all in there. Um, I was just, I wish there was like one shot where it was like, it peeked in. It was like a, like a $400 action figure or some dumb thing. In the, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the, something kinda, you'd buy. <laughs> something I would buy. Exactly. Exactly. My $70 Criterion clip. You know, they're putting um, Bon Joon Ho's uh, one of his best films. Like, you're laughing at. They're putting uh, Bong Joon Ho's <laughs> Memories of Murder Criterion Collection comes out this month. I am keen. <sighs> All right, are maybe you ready maybe to... Francis McDormand will, uh, will package it for me. Are you ready to move into highlights? There was this one more thing I want to talk okay. about. Okay. Now you mentioned earlier there was a bit of you wish there was more behind the scenes stuff. I caught one very short, I'll be a very short video, mm-hmm. uh, an interview with the DOP Joshua James Richards. He hasn't done a lot. He's done one film for Francis Lee, and he's worked on all of um, of Chloe Zhao's other features. That was a real trick he just did. He just, <laughs> he just he just circled around the microphone of his head like a <laughs> like a giraffe man. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, anyway, so that's the DOP. There's a two minute video where he talks a bit, 
it's on the Ari Rentals YouTube channel. So mm-hmm. you can go on that video, that channel and find it. But he talks a bit about the cinematography. And I'm just, I really, what I took away from it is that it was a really approachable way he went. So we talked a bit about the use of natural lighting, but it was really scarce. He talks about some shots where it's like maybe a close-up on ferns, like a 32 millimeter shot where um, I'm assuming he was talking about millimeter mm-hmm. lens sizes because he said 16, 18, 32 was most of the lenses he was using. Okay. Um, I'm surprised he didn't mention 35, but he was talking about how he would use literally just like a little LED, similar to the one that I would have on a, like on, on a C stand with like an attachable thing that mm-hmm. actually attaches. And that would be the entire lighting setup for some of the shots. And then, of course, just being out there in sort of the desert and the natural lighting and mostly shooting during sunset um, would fill the rest in. And it's I I liked that he talked a bit about Joe Cohen coming up to set one day. And he was mm-hmm. like, oh, great, Joe Cohen is looking at my shitty lighting setup as one little LED <laughs> and lighting his wife. Um, but I just wanted to mention it. There's a good video to check out. It's very short, but it just shows how approachable the lighting setups were. Yeah, and this, I think at the end of the day, it keeps it more grounded and real. I mean, you don't yeah. want to be making it artificial. And I think uh, I think nowadays, and there is an art to lighting, and there is an art to real theatrical and dramatic lighting, mm. but in a film like this, if you went too far, if you had gigantic, you know, blonde blankets and you know, yeah. light, light blankets and halogens and all that stuff, you would just... It creates a very artificial environment, and when you're working with a lot of non-actors, I can imagine that would also affect them and yeah. affect their performances. So it definitely was the most appropriate means, I reckon. Yeah, um, I, I agree completely. But um, I just wanted to throw that there for people who maybe are aspiring DOPs. It doesn't have to be the most complicated lighting setup. This film is absolutely in the contention for best cinematography at the Academy. And uh, very, very simple setup, so... There you go. Well, highlight scenes, my man. What was your highlight (laughs) scenes? Highlight scenes, my man. Um, Mine, uh, I think of two scenes that come to mind. We've sort of mentioned them both already, but Mm -hmm. I'll reiterate. I love the Bob Wells story where he's talking about his son. I think that's just a great scene. Very simple, like you said. Mm -hmm. Very, very simple coverage. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't even know if there's a wide. There might be an establishing wide, but... Yes, I think there is. Okay, but it's just the two of them for the most part, and you're right, they're pretty much sitting right next to each other. Um, but I just love the story and, and the fact that that's sort of the encapsulation of it, telling Fern that one day she will be able to talk about her husband and mm-hmm. maybe her grief would be a little less hard. Um, but I also love the one that you mentioned earlier with the perfect golden hour and you sort of see the the wide vista of the, the, the park and how everyone's sort of place themselves but it, it, it's just a beautiful one and i think it's at least 90 seconds two yeah. minutes long yeah i think the bob wells story is hitting it sort of nail on the head um i like that and i like i really um enjoy probably if i was to pick a highlight scene it would probably be that also that okay. or honestly um <laughs> no i would probably okay. go i'd probably go when she visits empire at the end okay i really like that sequence really the idea of obviously ghost towns exist everywhere across america they exist in australia but it's one thing to like at the start when they explain the empire situation oh like the opening text yeah and it's another yeah. thing to really like see that this was thousands of people's lives that just evaporated. Yes, that's a really good point. Um, 
and you know for every you know we end up going into Fern's house but it's just one house on a on it's a street one story of, yeah you know so I found that I'm, really I'm glad you because I remember thinking a similar thing but mm. I'm glad you reminded me because you're absolutely spot on sort of the this is the one out of thousands maybe millions of stories mm. out there so. which really emphasizes this story is just an exploration of a person yeah and people around that person and the lifestyle of, of being on the road and what got them there and what might one day allow them to finally live in a home again or maybe not. I think mm. that 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 with the Wells story really shows that her journey might come to an end or it might never. She might never find that full closure, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's no right, right. or wrong answer um, to it. So, yeah, it's a remarkable film and a great way to mm. kick off the third season of this show. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, no, it's it's an excellent film. Um, I can't wait to it. I'm, I really want to watch it a second time. Um, there were a couple of scenes on YouTube if you want to be sneaky. But mm. I think the, the, the Bob Wells scene is on YouTube, and I was able to rewatch that at least. Mm. But um, it will be back in cinemas. I think the US will have its uh, theatrical release on January 29th, mm. so it's not far away. I think by February 19th it will be on Hulu. And I can guarantee you, for Australian cinemas, it'll be back before April, before the Oscars. No worries. Well, Nomadland is currently out uh, on those in, dates. Uh, on those dates. <laughs> uh, speaking of what's yeah. currently out, Jake, what's currently out on streaming platforms and cinemas this week? This is a pretty weak, weak, uh, weak week. Oh. A dry week. Yeah. Let's say. <laughs> <laughs> the joke makes sense in about two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't want to say week. It's just it's a it's a small week. There's not a lot coming out. I will say from now on, I've made an effort to talk about classics that are coming that are rescreening. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stop doing those weekly from now on. Okay. Um, I think we're well past that point. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's something really spectacular, mm-hmm. I want to shout out, but I'm not going to make an effort to do it every week. So. With that in mind... Changes for season three. Changes for season three. We're doing cuts. (laughs) Yeah, we're cutting the show in half with classics and cinemas. Uh, New to Netflix this week is The White Tiger, which sees an ambitious Indian driver using his wit and cunning to escape from poverty and rise to the top. I've seen this trailer. What do you think? interesting. I've seen the trailer too, and I don't Mm. know if it's... I don't know how to react to it. It reminded me a bit of... um, not drive. I'm thinking stylistically. It's a very like you know. Oh, look at all this crazy. Yeah, we stuff and I saw happens. the trailer for that. Maybe I saw a trailer in Luna. We went and saw something. Oh, maybe That's at some point. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I saw it on. Um, I, I think I just watched it on YouTube because I read that logline for the show. Mm. I was like, I need to know what this is. Yeah. I still couldn't tell you. But that's coming to Netflix this week. New to cinemas this week is Penguin Bloom, which he's a photographer and his family find hope and solace in an injured magpie. Another Aussie film. Another Aussie film. Stars Andrew Lincoln, Naomi Watts, and Jackie Weaver. So a couple of Australians. Yeah, it's got a very Australian lineup there. Yeah, but um, I've been saying this. There's a lot of Australian films these last few months, which is really great to see. High Ground, speaking of which, sees a young Aboriginal man, uh, I, you know what's funny? I wrote the pronunciation here, and now it's uh, Gadoo. Sorry, Gadoo. Team up with an ex-soldier in a desperate bid to save his fam- uh, the last of his family. They must track down Gadoo's uncle, the most dangerous warrior in the territory. So that is also an Australian period film. Yeah, it's for Revelation, I think. Is it? I think that was... Revelation, we're giving away tickets. That's a thing I... Oh, maybe... Okay, maybe it played at Revelation. Hmm. Awesome. Well, it sounds like it's getting its wide release this week. I'm keen to see it. The trailer looks dope. 
And uh, Dawn Raid is a documentary that chronicles the shameful passage into New Zealand race relations and the raids that took place in the mid-1970s. That's a doco. Sounds good. Hmm. But that's it for the week, Zeke. No worries. Well, it's time for us to move into what we're watching next week on the show. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Dry. Aaron, you need to be here for the funeral. We're expecting you. Sometimes when this place feels kind of empty... And all of the breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination You stinking pig! What are you doing back in that town, boy? Under the milky tonight So you've heard some stories about me? I've heard some Wish I knew what you were looking for You're reopening the investigation You think you're gonna get the truth in a town like this? I'd have known what you would find when you've been lying about something for so long, it becomes second nature. And it's something quite peculiar. Go! Under the Milky Way tonight. Federal agent Aaron Falk returns to his drought-stricken hometown to attend a tragic funeral of a childhood friend. But his return opens a decades-old wound, the unsolved death of a teenage girl. I saw this a couple of weeks ago. I have yet to see it. And, yeah, so we're obviously moving into next week on the show will be Australia Day, I think. I don't don't think it's quite on the... It's close, though. It'll be the 25th, so it'll be the day before Australia Day. Very controversial Um, Or Invasion Day, whichever (laughs) uh, cup of tea. Regardless, uh, we're going to keep with that tradition. We did Sweet Country last year for the Australia Day weekend. Yeah, uh, and we're going to stick with another Australian film. This is our first Australian film in a while. Is um, it? Oh, maybe you're right. Um, yeah. And I really enjoyed this film, and I probably will go see it a second time because I really enjoyed it. Um, nice. So it's doing really for- well at the box office. Yeah. Thinking about honest- like 6.8 million in the first week or something. That's great. That's insane for, for us. <laughs> yeah. For Aussie numbers. Um. Honestly, I saw it with a pretty packed cinema. So, yeah, I'm happy to go see it again. But until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with The Dry.